Alrighty, good morning Hope Church. There we are, we're ready to go in the book of Exodus, are we? Alright, with three of you and I can open up into Exodus chapter 23. Here we are, where, where you can tell a lot about a country or a nation or a city or a family by the things it celebrates, okay? The holidays they have, the, uh, the, 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 the weekends they have off, what parties they throw, what festivals they center around. And uh, today, we're, we're studying the, the Jewish festivals and feasts, which, which were not just uh, uh, commandments to do with uh, uh, agricultural seasons, although it was, uh, it was synced up with that. It wasn't simply a way to uh, uh, acknowledge the cycles of the moon, even though it was based on the timing of the moon. The feasts and the festivals of the Jewish nation was to be, uh, uh, to sanctify them and to remind them of God's grace towards them. Now we're going to look in a bit more detail, precisely the purposes today of why God instituted the seven feasts and festivals of the Jewish uh, uh, calendar that we see in the Old Testament. But look at Exodus chapter 23, verse 13 to verse 17. Here we see the, the section of the book of the covenant. We remember Exodus chapter 21 to 23 is Israel's constitution, Ten Commandments is the Bill of Rights, the Book of the Covenant is the constitution, how they were to enact as a nation, how they were to live as a country once they inhabited their land. And this is what verse 13 to verse 17 says, Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let them be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of the unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. That was the command that they always bring an offering when they come to worship God. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor. Of what you sow in the field, you shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord. Now, we're going to study the seven of them today, of which the Book of the Covenant only mentions the three, the three national holidays when everybody, the, the males, other sections of Scripture say all able-bodied people have to actually get up out of their tribal land and go to that place that God had established as a central worshipping place. The, the first few generations, it was, it was uh, here and there, but eventually it would become Jerusalem the place where Solomon would build the great temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. So, so that's what the book of the covenant, Exodus chapter 23, speaks about today. Those, those three main ones that they all go and gather, but we want, I wanted to, to break out and look a little bit more generally at all of them. These, these festivals were bookmarks for them. The feasts were, 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 were flags planted in the ground every few months so that they would remember their God. It would be for them a, a, a cycle of the year, and yet much more than simply a, a calendar for the Jews. We remember what Paul said, that it was written down for our example. It was written down for our instructions, all those things that happened in the Old Testament. Or John 5, Jesus says, to those people whose job it was, whose life it was, whose spiritual uh, 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 example it was, to know and study the words of Moses to be found as righteous and spiritual and godly to them, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them, in the commandments of Moses, in the festivals, in the sacrifices, in the commandments, you think that in them you will find life, but it is they that testify about me. Jesus showed us that the real substance and essence of everything written down before his time was ultimately about Jesus. So that when he was taken and crucified for sin, and when he rose triumphantly on the Sunday, and then he appeared to some of his friends who were going on a long walk, he met with them, and in a, in a veiled appearance, he opens up the Old Testament for them and rebukes them and says, how did you not know that the Messiah was going to suffer, die, be buried, and rise? It's written down. And so Luke 24 tells us, beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
As we study the feasts and festivals, we're, we're going to ask three questions. What was the purpose for the Jews? Secondly, how did this sort of contribute to the overarching storyline of the Bible? But thirdly, and most importantly, we're going to ask, how did these feasts and festivals point to, and now that they're written down, how do they preach to us the good news of God's Messiah, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? So, for the type A people who won't be able to go any further without a structure and a table and a calendar, here's how the, t- the, the, the festivals were all broken down. There was three in the first month. The first mom- month is called Nisan, and that's, that's about our March-April, about our Easter time. Uh, we go off there, our calendar is off the Gregorian calendar, it goes by the sun. The Jewish calendar was based on the lunar calendar, the, the moon's turns, and so they started each month when the new moon appeared, so, so, so it's slightly different to our months, but there was three festivals that all sort of overlapped each other in the first month of Nisan, and then there was one festival in the third month of Sivan, that's about our May-June, and then there was three in the seventh month, so three in the first month, one in the third month, and then three more in the seventh month, which is called Tishri, and that's about our September. And, and they loosely follow, well, well they, they, they did follow the agricultural sort of calendar of the year, and uh, they, they went on during what we might call the fiscal year, the financial year of Israel, while they did all of their farming, God utilized the downtimes in that farming cycle to be able to have and hold festivals together. And here's part of the purpose. It was more than just celebration. God loves a party. There's definitely that, but, but it's more than that. The, one of the main reasons that God had this, a, a purpose for creating these festivals, was to mark out the Jews as different from all of the other nations, as, as to put a stamp on them, not just individually in circumcision, not just in their, in their weekly gatherings and worshipings and things like that, but even in their annual national structure of their calendar, they were to be marked out as God, Yahweh's people. So that while all the nations around them had calendars and holidays and festivals and week structures all based on their gods, and their God's fertility cycles, and their God's sort of a, a, a mythological stories that they handed down to them. While all the other nations did that, the Israelites were to be Yahweh's people. They had one God, and he gave them their calendar. <coughs> he owns them, and they needed nothing from any of these other gods. Secondly, but the, the purpose that God gave these festivals was to be, was to be a, a remembrance and a reminder for them of important theological truths. An important reminder. Uh, we, we are a, a, a race, uh, human beings just have recurring amnesia. Uh, uh, I think it was Wesley who said that what one generation in the spiritual life of the church, what one generation embraces, maybe in a reformation or in a revival, what one generation embraces, the next sort of assumes, you know, it's always been this way, this is the teaching, And then the third generation neglects, bored with what has been assumed, and the fourth just ultimately abandons it, absolutely abandons that truth, so that what is needed is yet another rediscovery, re-embracing, and reformation. This is true. This is why God commanded in Psalm 145 that, that the marker of his people should be that they extol the work of God to the coming generation. One generation shall tell the next of the marvelous works of God. That's Psalm 145. That's necessary because what happens in one generation, what is understood by one generation, here's a warning even for us as a a thriving church, as a church of people with conviction who love the word and stand fast on its truth. Will you be an instrument in God's hand to ensure that your great-grandchildren and those who are saved after us also walk with the same level and greater zeal of conviction? God commanded this continual festival calendar so that they could come together and remember God's sovereignty, God's providence, and God's promises. So so they would come together and they remember, I've been working, I've been tilling the field, but it's God who's been providing. So they gave the sacrifices. They would remember, I've been been sweating, I've been saving up, I've been putting my grain and my gold into a a bank account, and well, I've been saving up, but it's, it's ultimately God who's been sustaining. They would come together and they would remember, I'm the one who's been worrying 
who's been fretting all year round, and I come again to a festival and I'm reminded that God is the one who protects us as his covenant people. I'm, I'm the one who's been sinning continually, but I come to another festival where the blood is shed, and I'm reminded that God has been the one continually forgiving me. So the festivals were to reestablish and remind them of important theological truths. But thirdly, this is sort of a mix of the first two, not only was it to mark them out and to remind them of things, but it was also to remind them of their identity in God. We said before, we're a, we're a people of recurring amnesia. This is true in the church. This was true back then. It's true now. It's, it was true for the Jews. Uh, uh, for example, how many of us, I mean, probably a very sh- small number, it's probably the nerds, it's probably just the history buffs, uh, or, or some other way, you're kind of weird, but most of us could not name our, our great-grandparents, let alone our, our great-great-grandparents, or, or maybe if I was to ask you, what generation did your forefathers come to this country? Why did they come? How did they come? What was their, what was their prayer in coming that, that would be uh, the purpose of their being here for their great-great-grandchildren? You, do you even know the, their names? So many of us are, now this is not necessarily a moral obligation, but the, the, the point is that we're a generation that, I mean, our, 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 our history started maybe a couple of months before we were born when people were talking about us anyway. I mean, we don't go that far back into history. We continually forget things. We forget what was important to our forefathers, what was important to generations that went before us. We're, we're just an easily forgetful human race. And so for that purpose, God gave them, the the Jews, he didn't want them to go into the land, get all of their riches, find all of these cities they could just live in, they didn't have to build all these these farms that were just ready to, to harvest, that they didn't even have to plant, just cellars full to the brim of the finest Jewish Shiraz ever that they could just go and drink of. They they didn't have to do anything, they just inherited this land. And he wanted to make sure that they would not live there and forget quickly who they were to God. So he said every year, three times in the first month, then in the third month, three more times in the holy month, the seventh month. Seven is a number, special number for God. He said seven times in the year, gather back together and remember who you are. The first one is the most important for remembering who they are. The first one was the Passover, which was their annual reminder on the 14th day of the first month, an annual reminder of that night when God came down in wrath upon Egypt, on Egypt and on Israel, and the only people who were spared from God's wrath for their sin and idolatry was those who had taken a lamb, as he had said, shed its blood, eaten its meat, and painted the blood over their doorposts. Those people under the blood, and they alone were saved from God's wrath. And and so, so every generation, every year, Israel, even if they were born 150 years after the Passover, they were to gather in that meal, put blood outside, and remember, it is as if I myself was spared that night of the fearful Passover. I am a blood-redeemed, wrath-saved Jew. I belong to Yahweh. He has redeemed me by lamb's blood. That was to become part of their identity. It was also true of the, the, uh, the, the unleavened bread, which immediately followed. They would have the first day of Passover on the 14th. On the 15th, they would then have a seven-day period of, uh, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So on the 15th of Nisan, they would, they would gather together and, and they would throw out all of their unleavened bread, their, their leaven. So that's like yeast for, uh, for, for us. Uh, the, the leaven, they would throw it out. They would throw out the food that had leaven in it. They would sweep all of their cupboards free of leaven because leaven was a picture of sin. So God said, get it all out. Throw it all out. Sweep it all out. Don't be too careful. I mean, you can't be too careful. Just get it all out of your house. And here was the picture. That the unleavened bread, the, 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 the lack of leaven in the bread, rather, meant that the bread couldn't, couldn't rise. You couldn't get that nice, fluffy, cut it open with all the crumb and all that stuff. My wife makes sourdough bread, and it's amazing. And I'm, I'm learning the side of nose of science, but it is. And leaven helps sort of make it tasty and, and a little bit sour and, and fluffy and light. And you didn't have time to do that. It takes 10, 12, 13 hours to, to rise a loaf before you carefully bake. And here's what God was saying. I'm about to release you from Egypt. You're about to get on the road and run out of the land of your slavery. You don't have time for rising bread. 
Just get going. You're going to have to settle with flat, disgusting, crunchy bread that you just bake on a stone and then leave. That's it. And so this was their continual reminder every year. We sit around and for a whole week, we have no sourdough. We just have no, no fluffy bread. It's all crunchy flatbread for a whole week. And what's the reminder? God told our forefathers, get out of Egypt and get out quickly, for marvelous was his powerful hand. And what's the reminder? Well, that just as they left Egypt, they also left Egypt's practices behind. Get out of Egypt and then sweep all of Egypt's sin out of your own heart and life as well. Get rid of the leaven. Devote yourself to God. For not only are you a redeemed people by the blood, you are also a rescued people to belong to God alone. Therefore, get rid of your leaven. So God's method of identifying, marking out his people for himself, one of the methods was this, the seven festivals of the year. Now, we can ask the question, how did this sort of contribute to the overarching theme of the Bible, right? Because we know the the storyline of the Bible is not that God got the Israelites into the land, kicked back, threw his feet up on his divine recliner, and said, done, done deal, the world is saved, that's that's my plan. But God had much more to unfold in and through them and beyond them. So how did this contribute? Well, first of all, look at verse 13 of our passage this morning. Sort of an introduction to the reminder, keep my festivals. He says, don't let any of the other gods' names be on your lips. Don't worship them. You belong to me alone. Part of the purpose of uh, uh, the, the festivals in the overarching narrative of the Bible was to distinguish the Jews to God away from and distinct from the Canaanites and the Moabites and the Hittites and all of the other people. So, so here they were. The, the surrounding nations, were gonna, they were going to go and have Asherah Day. Hey, you come to the Asherah party? You're going to go have a Mother God weekend? We're going to do a few uh, naughty things, leave the clothes at the door, bring plenty of wine, bring plenty of gold. It's going to be a great, but you come to Asherah Day? The Jews would say, no, not at all. I'm just coming back from the Feast of Unleavened Bread, actually. I'm just coming back from the, the, the Feast of Passover, so they might say. They were to be kept distinct and separate so that spiritually they did not mingle with the other gods. Or they would not celebrate in Baal weekend, where they, they go and call down the rain at the time of, uh, uh, the, time of the rains. They would not uh, go and sacrifice animals to Baal so that their, 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 uh, their cows and their sheep would be more fruitful in the birthing this year. They would not do that because their cycle of festivals reminded them and kept them distinct to God. They would not go to the Chemosh and Molech parties and festivals and take their children and put them up on a large altar and tie them down and throw a flame upon them. They wouldn't do that because they were reminded that they belonged to God and would remain distinct from these people and therefore avoid being judged by God. That was a part of the purpose. Sanctify the people to him so that he didn't have to kill them all and then break all his promises to Abraham. Because he made a promise to Abraham that he would preserve his descendants, he would bring forth the Messiah out of them, and if they, they didn't stay true to him, he promised, I will come and destroy you. So he put things in place to help his people stay holy to him so he didn't have to kill them all for their idolatry like he did to the Egyptians. They had been committed and they needed to recommit themselves to God so that in continuity they would have a national identity and have, rather than the judgment of God, the ongoing year-by-year blessings of God until the time of the Messiah who would create and, and propagate a holy, blessed nation. Also, the other way this points forward, the narrative of the storyline of the Bible, was to prepare even the Jews in expectation for the Messiah. It was to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah, the Christ. They they were to be expectant, that just as they celebrated Passover, they would be waiting the salvation of the ultimate lamb. Just as the Day of Atonement, they made sacrifices in the temple. This was supposed to point forward and upward to a greater day when a greater priest would make a greater sacrifice in better blood and then remove all of the necessities of having to come and make more sacrifices. As the high priest went in and just saw the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, 
coated in blood, layer after layer, year after year, the blood just gets... When will it be enough? When will there be enough blood shed that our sins can be once and for all forgiven? This is supposed to be the expectation built in and interwoven into the festival process. It was supposed it was a, 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 to, to build in them a sense of anticipation. If this is what God did looking back in our rescue, if this is what God continues to do in our protection and our providence and our sustenance as a nation, imagine what God's going to do. When the man that Moses spoke of, the great and better prophet comes, Imagine what God's going to do when when that one who Adam told us about, the one who will come and crush the serpent's head, what will it be like when he comes? Supposed to build in them a sense of anticipation, but also supposed to build in them a sense of insufficiency. To remember that that none of these sacrifices, none of these festivals, they're they're just not it. They're great. We remember God. We remember his his blessings, but there is more. There has to be more because we still have people being put to death for sin. We still have enemies biting at our heels along the, the borders of the nation. We still have high priests who die when they go into the holy place because they didn't wash properly. I mean, is this it? They were supposed to ask. This is great. Thank you, God. But quietly, is this it? Is this it? Then we come and we make the sacrifices and then I walk home and you know what I feel? Worse. Because as all the blood was shed, I didn't feel a relief of my conscience. I felt an even greater burden upon my conscience. Look how bad my sin is. An inbuilt sense of insufficiency in all of the old shadow, Colossians calls it, the feasts and the festivals of Israel. They spoke forward of a day yet to come now, here's, here's the question we ask. Did those purposes that God gave them to, to, to propagate the storyline of the Bible, were they successful? <laughs> they describe, here, here's how they push forward the storyline of the Bible, right? They'll keep Israel pure to God, separated from the other idolatry and syncretism, and, and they'll keep them under God's rich blessings until Jesus comes and smiles upon them all, and they receive him, and, and they love him heaps, and, and then the other part is that they're anticipating him, they're waiting for him, they, they'll say, we love Moses' law, but we love the, the revelation of God in, in Christ even better. Is that what happened? Or did they stray? Just kick, kick out the holidays altogether. They just kicked it out, stopped celebrating them, joined into the idolatry of every one of the other gods, killed all their babies on the altars for good luck. They, they went and slept together in the, in the temples of the false gods. Solomon went and just married all of the priestesses, daughters of all of the ancient, all of the, 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 the pagan nations, and, and, and then they were killed, butchered in their own city. The temple burned down. People exiled and then brought back in God's mercy. They failed the purposes that God was giving these festivals for, but God was more gracious and more merciful. What the law could not do, God did by sending his son. What the festivals could not do because of the weakness of the flesh of the Israelites and anyone else that partook in them, because of the weakness of the law, God sent his own son. When the fullness of time had come, God gave forth his son, born under this festival, legal, Moses covenant system, in order to redeem both the Jews and also the Gentiles. So beginning with Moses, let us today interpret all the things in these scriptures that point to Jesus. Would you rather do that and study a bunch of calendars and new moods? Would you rather study Jesus? Well, good. Now, some of you, you're a little bit hesitant. Do I amend that? Are we Marcionists? Like, do we hate the Old Testament? No, no, no. We're going to study Jesus in the Old Testament. Do you want to do that? Yeah. All right, there we go. We're going to study Jesus in the Old Testament. So to all those who had faith, to all those who had the eye of faith, the elect in ancient Israel, they saw in these festivals something greater echoing a promise that God had made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to, 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 uh, uh, to Adam and to Noah. They saw in these festivals a greater salvation coming and they believed by faith in the Messiah to come. But but there's no way that you can read the Old Testament and then read the New Testament 
and come away without this mindset, how little the Israelites knew. I hope you never get jealous of the, of the Jews, the Old Testament time, when God did amazing things and, and the prophets spoke. That's, that's idolatry. Blessed as they were. Peter himself says that even the prophets of the Old Covenant wished they knew what the everyday Christian knows today. They wish they could see the power and glory of God on display in the cross with the clarity that we now know it. Yes, they looked forward to a Messiah to come, but it was shrouded in mystery and shadow. They could see like a silhouette on a dusty horizon. But we see Jesus, the God in flesh, salvation for our sins. We see Jesus with clarity and with clear vision by the Holy Spirit. So they were living in this giant pop-up book, surrounded by the things that explained the gospel, but they were in the book. They, they couldn't quite make sense of the bigger picture. But you and me, as New Covenant believers, we're reading the pop-up book. We can see it, and we can see how it points to Jesus, and we, from a, from a vertical angle, can see Jesus in all the pages that they just couldn't make out. So consider first the, the, the Feast of Passover. On the 14th of the first month, that they would come and, and they would go to Jerusalem because unleavened bread, the, the, the feast that started the next day, was one of the ones they all had to gather. So they would gather a few days early. They would have their Passover meal as families, sometimes cousins as well, bigger families, groups of friends. If you didn't have your own families, you'd, you'd come in, you'd bring a perfect one-year-old male lamb that has no blemish, no spot, no wrinkle, no, no limp, right? The perfect lamb. You would kill it and cook it and eat it together and remember that by the blood of that first Passover lamb, you were redeemed from the wrath of God. And then it's on that very holy day that Jesus comes together and celebrates the Passover with his disciples in Jerusalem and he says that there's a whole bunch of new promises which are made to you, not in the blood of the lamb, but in the blood of Christ myself. Who is the better lamb? The lamb of God. He came and showed them that he was to be killed as the Passover lamb for all who believe. So that we now say, as we think of Passover, we can say, I deserve to die. This is a great reminder every morning. Tell yourself that here's your, here's your affirmations, your self-positivities and whatever else they tell you, right? I deserve to die the most horrible death under the wrath of the holy God but I'm alive, and I'm alive because Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, bore the wrath of God in my place. For that reason and no other, I have life. That's our reminder. That's what the Passover reminds us of. And, and therefore, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Hallelujah. Christ is our Passover lamb. Or then the next day, they would start celebrating the, the, the festival of unleavened bread, and it would go all week, a seven-day celebration. So having traveled to Jerusalem, having kept the Passover with your family, the next day, having already, the day before, swept out all the leaven, swept it all clean, thrown it out of the jars, put little, put little cloth bags over your leaven bags, kept them outside, put them out of the house, as you've done all of that, you were told, you, you rem, they remembered that in haste, there was no time for the bread to rise. Get out of Egypt. Well, Egypt was the area of sin's slavery. For us, Pharaoh pictures Satan's grip upon us. For us, leaven is the growth of sin which infects everything. And therefore, Jesus is the unleavened bread for us who is pure and without sin in himself. As they partook of the unleavened bread, remembering God calls for purity and sinlessness. <laughs> I can't bring that. They were to think, I hope someone can one day please God with sinlessness, because I sure can't. And we remember Jesus, who is our Passover lamb, but who is also the bread from heaven, pure and undefiled, leavenless bread given for us. Therefore, Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 5 to the Christians, clean out all of the leaven that you may be a new lump. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with 
the old leaven, the leaven of malice and of evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we as Christians, as we study the festival of unleavened bread, and I hope you're reading and studying your Old Testament, we can remember, I was in sin slavery. I was called to flee out of sin to Jesus Christ and holiness. And I'm commanded to, to sweep my mind and my heart, my life and my soul of any stain of sin that I still see. I left malice and evil behind. I embrace sincerity and truth now in Jesus Christ. That's how we remember the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then the next day was the season of first fruits. Now, here's, here's the overlap. The first day was Passover. Second day, they started unleavened. But on the, the Sunday, if we can, the, the, the first day of the week, two days after uh, the, the Passover celebration thereabouts, would be the, 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 the season of first fruits, the, the, the day of remembrance. Now, Here's one of the other things you pack in your satchel. It's getting to be a pretty, pretty full satchel as you're packing to go camping in Jerusalem for the weekend. You got your lamb shoved in there that you're going to eat, still alive. You, you got the sacrifices you're going to make at the temple. You got some of the gold to sort of pay your way. Uh, you got your, 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 your trail mix for the hike up a mountain. And then you also shove in a, a sheaf. Maybe you get the kid to carry this one. A sheaf, uh, a bundle of the first, the very first crop that you gathered from your field that harvest. And this was, was, was to be offered with some, some food offerings and some wine offerings, things like that. But you were to give it to the priest and they would wave it before God. Here's what that was saying. The very first inklings of the full harvest, which we'll celebrate in a few months, the very first of it was ready to pick. So we picked it. And here's the reminder. God, you brought the first, you'll bring the rest. We trust in you, God, that you're the God of the harvest. You're the God of the seasons. You're the God of the provision, and you're the God of the promises. And, and here we are, we're your faithful people. We're bringing the first gathered sheaf to wave before you, and remember, you will bring the rest. What happened on that day of first fruits after Jesus was killed at Passover? That first day of first fruits Jesus was risen from the grave in the power of the triune God. Rightly then does Paul say that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those fallen asleep. Do Christians die? Absolutely. Do we die under the wrath and punishment of God? Absolutely not. Because Jesus, who is the same harvest as us, here's how we think as Christians, he's the exact same harvest as you. He's the exact same, if I can use New Testament language, the exact same body as you. You're the same spiritual, spiritual person, if we can speak it that way. He's the head, you're the body. If the head's sticking up out of the grave, talking to you, is the rest of the body going to come following Absolutely. Here is Jesus, the, the first gathered sheaf of death, ripped up out of the ground, seated in the throne of glory. Every Christian, therefore, who believes in Jesus by faith, knows for a fact it's not the final harvest time yet. It's not the day of the resurrection of the dead yet. I bury my brothers, I bury my sons, I bury my cousins, I bury my friends. I myself one day will be laid in the ground. But there's a day we're all going to wake up. There's a day coming that all of our bodies will meet again with our souls from heaven and be reborn in the final harvest of the resurrection from the dead. And then there's the Feast of Weeks. This would be <coughs> after the first day of the first fruits, then you, you count seven weeks or 49 days, and then on the next day would be a Sabbath. This became known in the Greek as Pentecost, meaning 50 days. And it was on that day that you don't just wave one sheaf, but you bring a whole bundle of sheaves, and, and again you gather in Jerusalem, and that day of festival is a celebration that God gave what he promised to give. He gave sustenance, he gave grain, he gave food, he gave bread. He has sustained us yet again by giving what he promised to give. And it's not the end of all of the harvest for the year, it's the end of the first harvest of the year. 
So the, 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 the festival of first fruits or Pentecost, they would gather in Jerusalem and say, the first harvest is done. All of the grain has been gathered, not the fruits yet, not all the, the pomegranates and olives and grapes, that's later, but the grain has been gathered. God, we remember you because you gave to us what we needed to live. Now, it was even more special than that because Jewish tradition says, and as you sort of count through the days of Exodus, that it was on Pentecost day that Moses came down after being with God. He came down to the people of Israel and gave them the gift of the law. What a holy day this was to the Jews. That at Pentecost they would remember that Moses the great servant came back. That Moses the great servant gave the tremendous law which would be our life. Do you remember him saying that? Yet it was on Pentecost... After Jesus rose from the dead, just a few weeks later, seven weeks later, Pentecost, as all the Jews gathered, it was not Moses the servant who came down, but Jesus the son who arrived. And he did not give the law, nor did he come bodily, but he sent his Holy Spirit to the church because the Spirit would be our source of life. The, the, the day of Pentecost, it's not just a denomination, friends. It's, it's the day that the Spirit landed on the church and birthed her into new life. Now, do you remember what happened when Moses came down on the first Pentecost? We'll get there soon in, in Exodus. He came down, he found the people in their idolatry and unbelief and butchered 3,000 of them in, in, in punishment. God sent a plague and killed them. Do you remember what happened on the Pentecost of Jesus? He came, he found them in faith, believing, receiving the Messiah, and he saved 3,000 souls that day. God loves to write the story of history in such a way as to center everything on Jesus. And now we're in the harvest age, the age of, of the church or the new covenant or Christ's kingdom, whatever we call it, until now Jesus returns is the day of harvest, is the time of bringing in the ingathering of the souls of all of God's people by the preaching of the gospel. And then we'll fast forward to the seventh month. This is the fifth. And again, in the seventh month, there was three holy days that sort of happened in quick succession. The first one was on the first day. The next one was on the tenth day. The next one was on the fifteenth day. The first day of the seventh month, the, a holy month for God's people, was the Feast of Trumpets. This is sort of September for us. And it was sacred to the Jews because this was one of their... their they're very holy days, and it was announced by trumpets on the day of, the, of that new moon. As, as that new month unfolded now, as the moon came out, tradition says from morning till dusk, they would blast their ram's horn, right? You think you've got an annoying neighbor with a Harley? Sun up, there's the ram's horn, and they just pass on the, 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 the obligation to each priest in the line, and they would just have an orchestra of ram's horns blasting all day. And the reminder was... Begin testing yourself. Are you ready? Because in a few short days, we're going to meet God in the Day of Atonement. The high priest is going to go make our sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, one of the most holy day, the most holy day of their camp. Are you ready? The trumpet would blast and your conscience would be pricked and you would remember, again? The Day of Atonement's come up again? I was going to repent this year. I was, I was going to stop all my sin this year and it's the Day of Atonement again. Are you ready to meet God? The trumpet blast would command. Are you ready to meet God in holiness? Well, Jesus, says Paul, will return at the end of history with the mighty sound of a trumpet. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We won't all sleep. He's saying, not everybody will die but we will all be changed. What? We will all be resurrected, but we won't all die? How do you get resurrected if you don't die? It's even better. You just, it, you just change. You just immediately get resurrected on the spot. It'll happen together. The, the dead will rise. The living will be resurrected in that same moment at the return of Jesus. In a moment, he says, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. Or First Thessalonians 4 verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead 
in Christ will rise. There is only one more trumpet to come. And it is the trumpet that does not warn you, are you ready to meet God? It will be the trumpet that says, it's too late. It is a day of sealing. It's the day when Jesus comes back. He doesn't say, I'll give you 10 days till the day of atonement. It's immediate. The trumpet blasts and we will meet God, either in our unrighteousness or in the righteousness granted by faith. Do you, my friends, unbelievers, have you made your souls ready to meet God? Because he could come back next week, tomorrow, this afternoon, or in a thousand years from now. But you could meet Jesus tomorrow in death. When that trumpet blasts and you're called before God, will you be ready? And then the sixth was the Day of Atonement. Ten days after the Feast of Trumpets, we're coming to a close now. On the sixth one, the trumpet blasted nine days ago. They would then gather for the Day of Atonement, but in their own locations. In their own locations, they would have a Sabbath in your own uh, tribal areas. You'd sit down with the family. You'd make certain sacrifices. You'd give to your local priest. But all the while, you would know that in Jerusalem, he's making the holy sacrifices that he only makes once a year. I mean, there's daily sacrifices, there's there's, there's weekly sacrifices, monthly sacrifices, then there was annual sacrifices, where only the high priest, only him, and only once a year, if he washed properly, cleansed himself properly, was pure of heart, only then would he be allowed to go in behind the six-inch thick curtain into the most holy place of God where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was the place where God dwelt within that temple. And once a year, he would take in one bull, picture this with me, one big bull killed outside of the tent, the blood then taken in a bowl, and he would go in to the holy place. He would sprinkle the the, the altar and the instruments in there, And that was a sign of him cleansing himself and the priests for their sin, for his own sin. Then he would go back out and there would be two goats waiting for him. One he would kill and take the blood back into the holy place and he would would sprinkle that on the the altar and on the mercy seat. And this was to actually uh, 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 cleanse the the tabernacle or the temple itself which had been uh, 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 corrupted by the people's sin. Then he would go back out and he would get the other uh, goat which he would lay his hands upon and impute the sin of the whole nation onto this one goat and then send it out into the wilderness where it would be chased over a cliff to die. Then he, he would come back and take a ram and that ram would be offered up on the altar as a burnt offering, not not now going into the holy place, but offering it up as a burnt offering. And then the skin and the innards of all of the sacrifices will be taken outside the city to be burned because outside the city was a place of shame. And then wherever you are in the nation, you rest, you have your food, and you hope beyond all hope that this holy priest did it right, and that God let him come out of the holy place alive, and that he would be gracious over you as a nation for 12 more months. You would hope beyond all hope. And then we're told in Hebrews of Jesus Christ. Here's what verse 11 and 12 of chapter 9 says. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not the one made with hands, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, therefore not securing a 12-month redemption, thus securing an eternal redemption. So that as we remember the day of atonement, the the book of Hebrews tells us Jesus is both the high priest and every sacrifice. He, He didn't take blood to have to cleanse for his own sin. His blood was pure and without sin and therefore could be shed for others. His blood went in and became the the offering on the altar that says, God, do not look on the people's sin, but look on my blood which cleanses them and therefore we have cleansing. 
Jesus was also that goat, the, the scapegoat upon whom all of our sins was laid and he was taken outside of the city and crucified. He was put in a place of shame, not, not killed in the temple, but in a place of shame on a, on a criminal's cross. Jesus was every single sacrifice. He fulfills the day of atonement. And that most holy day for the Jews was but a flickering flame compared to the midday sun. Jesus Christ is our sacrifice. Or lastly would be the, the day of tabernacles, the 15th day of the seventh month. And this was the final big holiday of the year, the, the third one when they all had to gather. And what happened was that they would come into Jerusalem and they would, they would go camping. We love camping. What was Winston Churchill's joke? You, you pay a whole bunch of money to pretend you're homeless for a week. And so camping, they would come to Jerusalem and you're not allowed to live in your uncle's getaway house or in the, in the mountaintop uh, uh, villa. You had to get tarps and poles and, and branches and build yourself a little home outside and you would live outside for a week. Here's, this was God's interwoven process. When your wife says, why in the world are we sitting in the dirt when you built for me a house of brick? Right? When the kid keeps crying, Dad, why are we eating on the ground instead of our table? Why are we fe feeding out here? Why are we doing all this out here and not inside in the comfort? The reminder that the heads of the households had to give to the family was, this is how a whole generation of Jews lived that were redeemed from Egypt. God says, I mean, we're hardly making it a week. God sustained them for 40 years in mercy, in providence, in protection. He did this for, for 40 years. Isn't that a marvelous God? Now, we get to go home after a week and live in our house, live in our lakeside villa, live with our fields and our agriculture and our pets, but not the first generation of Israelites. Aren't we so blessed? Aren't we thankful to God that he sustained them and has now blessed us? That would be the point of the reminder. They also remembered, or at least we should, that it is our time now as a journey through the wilderness of this life, where we're not yet in our eternal home, we're not yet in the mansions of glory that Christ has prepared for us. We are living, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, in bodies that are like tents. They're temporary. We're not yet in the, the full abode of where we will live. We are still waiting for that day when we get to inherit the eternal inheritance and live in that Canaan of heaven, the Zion that is above. And, and just as at the time of the tabernacles that they're living in, the, the Feast of Booths it might be called, or Sukkot to the Jews, as they're living in them, do you know what harvest they just finished? The grape harvest. So yeah, they have their wine and it's all very celebratory. And it was a great week of camping. Do you know what Revelation 14 says of Jesus Christ when he comes back? That he has a grape harvest all of his own. That he comes to the world and that all who are sinners and that all who have not believed on his name and all who have not repented of their sin and trusted the gospel, he takes a sickle and he collects all of them and it says poetically that he puts them into a vat and he gets into that vat like an ancient wine presser and he stomps them with his wrath so that their blood flows at about a meter and a half high for hundreds of kilometers. That's the grape harvest that is to come. That's the warning of the Feast of Tabernacles. You're in a body that won't last forever. One day you'll die. And you, will you be a, a grape in, in, the, in, the, in the wine of blessing at the Feast of the Lamb? Or will you be a grape crushed, your blood poured out in wrathful uh, consequence, in punishment, in judgment unto Jesus, under Jesus, the great high priest of our confession, the, the one who is proclaimed as the judge of the living and the dead by the Father who raised him up from the dead. So in conclusion, what is God's word to you today? If God could speak from the top of Mount Sinai to you today, what would he say? He would say, you are under God's wrath. Jesus' blood can spare you. You will die one day, but Jesus has defeated death and can raise you too if you believe. You are dead in your sin, but he can give you the Holy Spirit to give you life. You are going to meet him one day when the final trumpet sounds. You don't know when. The blood of Jesus is the only thing that can atone for your sin. He died, though he was perfect, for sins not his own. 
He died for you and paid the penalty in your place and makes you clean and acceptable before God, no matter how sinful you have been. Jesus will come back one day on a moment determined by God, and if you are not found in him, you will be judged for your sin. But if you believe in him, you will be raised in a permanent, unending life. If you believe in him, there is nothing that you can do to save yourself, but God will forgive you by your faith in Jesus Christ alone. And if you've already believed that, if you're a Christian, then let all that is within you praise the Lord. Let's sing. Let's pray first. Father God, we thank you for your mercy. There are people sitting here today, just as there were all throughout the generations of Israel. They're partaking, they're seeing, they're watching, they're hearing, they're listening, but they are not forgiven. We pray, Lord God, that it would not be the case for many today, as it was the case for many in Israel, that they saw the shapes and the, the shadows, but they did not receive the fullness that they partook in and they, they joined in the momentary celebrations of the festivals, but they missed the point. Let, let nothing that I've said confuse anybody, Lord God. Let, let, let no one leave here under, under the confusion that they are fine with God even though they're outside of Jesus. Please, Lord God, point each of them clearly to the cross of Jesus Christ. Only there sin is forgiven. Would you please give them the faith to believe in him and trust in him for forgiveness of sins. Father God, those who know you, would you, like you said to the Israelites, would you let it be true for us? Would we celebrate in you? Would we remember your grace? Would we be kept from the deceptive draw of sin because we know the sweetness of our God? Make us righteous and holy and zealous, Lord God, and save people for your own name's sake. We pray all these things in the name of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And everybody said... This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.